Hi, my name is Andy Chamberlain, and this is the Creative Writers Tool Belt, the podcast that gives you advice and insight that you can apply straight away to your own writing. You can find out more at my website, andrewjchamberlain.com, where you'll also find information about the Creative Writers Tool Belt handbook, which condenses all of the very best advice and insight from my expert guests and me in one place. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Creative Writers Tool Belt and that it's helpful to you on your writing journey. And welcome to episode 120 of the Creative Writers Tool Belt. I'm recording this on Wednesday the 15th of May and this evening I had a look at where all of you listeners were based and I am delighted and a little bit awed to see that in the last couple of weeks people from 55 different countries around the world have downloaded the podcast. I have to say it's a privilege to serve all of you, the listeners to this podcast, I know some of you are in countries where I have a lot of followers, so the UK, the USA, Australia and Canada, and some of you, quite a few of you in fact, are in nations dotted all over the globe from Ireland to Iran, Sweden to South Africa, Brazil to Germany, and many others in places where I have just a few listeners. All of you are welcome, wherever you are based in the world, whatever your circumstances, however far advanced you are in your journey as a writer. And I'm really pleased to be able to bring you what I hope is practical, accessible advice that will help you on your journey. This episode is an interview with a man who is no stranger to many nations around the world. Tim Leffel is an award-winning travel writer, the author of a number of books, including The World's Cheapest Destinations, Travel Writing 2.0, and Make Your Travel Dollars Worth a Fortune, The Contrarian Traveller's Guide to Getting More for Less. He's also an established blogger, speaker, and ghostwriter. And in this episode, we talk about Tim's experiences as a writer of non-fiction, how to get started and thrive as a blogger, and a travel writer, and Tim gives us his hints and tips on making our writing time more efficient. I had a great chat with Tim. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Here it is. Okay, so Tim, welcome to the Creative Writers Tool Belt. Hey, thanks for having me on. Well, it's great to have you. I know that you have done lots of different things and are doing lots of different things as a writer. So I wondered if you could just tell us a little bit about what you do now and particularly how you got into travel and travel writing. Sure. Well, well, what I do now is work as a travel writer, which is a very broad thing, but I usually just tell people that because it's easier. But I run uh, five (laughs) different websites really as a publisher focused on different niches, niches. And I have some books out that generate royalties. And then I still do a little freelancing as well. So it kind of is a hodgepodge of things like a lot of self-employed people that hopefully adds up to a decent whole. (laughs) And then um, when I first started out, I I actually worked in the music business for RCA Records and I worked on the marketing side. That was after I got out of college. It's kind of what I studied. And uh, eventually, I met a girl, as these things go, <laughs> and uh, she said, I want to go traveling around the world, and it would really be nice if you went with me, but if you don't, I'm going to go anyway. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so I took off backpacking with her eventually after we got lots of affairs sorted out and whatever, and I was trying to figure out what I was going to do to make some money along the way, and uh We did eventually teach English a few places, but I started working as a travel writer because I had already done lots of writing in my job and thought it wouldn't be a huge transition. And so I started pitching articles to editors and got some accepted and worked as a part-timer for many, many years. And then after the internet came along, it got easier to go full-time. So I switched over and that's been my only job for about 12 years now. Obviously, the, the travel writing is a major part of what you do, but um, I, I think I'm right in saying you are now full-time. What you do is what you do full-time, isn't it? The, the portfolio of things that you do. Yes, and I've managed to su- support a family for a while, so I've, I'm pretty proud of that because as a writer, that's not something that's always easy to pull off. No, no, it's not. And How have you diversified both within travel writing and perhaps outside it to some of the other things that that you do that we can be talk we'll be talking about. Sure. Well, I think first it's good to back up a little bit and say why I felt like I needed to be diversified, and that's 
after going through what a lot of freelance writers do, where it's just a complete roller coaster, feast or famine. And uh, I felt like it was going to be really hard to make a living at this if I kept on that path that I was experiencing as a part-timer. And it was okay as a part-timer. It was sort of extra money. But I knew if I was going to ever get to a point where I was paying regular bills that needed to be the income needed to be more regular. So over time, I started starting up blogs and working for online sites and doing some ghostwriting, which we can talk about later, and basically just stringing together enough work that I could look four months, six months out and know that my bills were going to get paid. And that is much easier if you're a publisher, you know, as a blogger or putting out any kind of content sites, really. You just have a more reliable stream of income than you do as a freelancer basically trading your time for money. Could you tell us a little bit about how blogging works then as a, as a business? Yeah, hey, I ran my blog for years before I knew that there even was a way to make any money from it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's how most people start out. You know, they're doing it out of love or out of interest about a certain subject. But it's gotten much, much easier over the years to monetize your blog, as they say. So now there are people rushing into it just to make money, which is probably not the best path because, first of all, you're probably not going to be all that passionate about it. But also, you know, things can change in the Google algorithms or how Facebook works or whatever. And so if you don't love the subject, you're going to get really frustrated <laughs> probably. But uh, so, yeah, when it first started back in, this is back in 2003 when I started a blog and that was kind of like the pioneering days. And then AdSense came along and that was really the first way people could start to easily make money from their blog. They could just put up a piece of code and it would pay them, you know, every day. It might only be enough for a pack of gum, chewing gum or something, but you know, they'd get something out of it. Otherwise you had to do direct deals, you know, direct sponsorship, direct advertising. And, and back then everybody pretty much said, what's a blog? And they didn't want to spend any money on it. But now we've gotten this whole ecosystem of display ads and sponsorships, sponsored posts, the ambassador programs, you know, all these things that have just sort of added layers to the income options. And then you also have people that are kind of social media influencers that are getting paid for posing in the right outfit or you know, eating the right food or whatever. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> <laughs> There's a couple of things I just wanted to follow up quickly from what you said there. Perhaps just one main question. What are advertisers looking for? If, if there are people that, that want to advertise or just engage, let's say, with your blogging and with the blogs that you run, what are the what are the metrics that they are interested in to see if it's value for money for them? This is kind of oversimplifying it, but they're either looking for mass or they're looking for subject expertise you know they want to either reach lots and lots of eyeballs so if you've got a blog that gets a million visitors a month you're going to have advertising or they want to reach people who like kayak fishing and if you run a blog about kayak fishing those people are going to find you or they're going to at least take your call you know or your email when you get in touch so they don't expect a blog like that to have you know even 10,000 visitors a month maybe but they know that the ones that are coming to that blog are very interested in that subject. And so it's a good place for, uh, you know, a fishing kayak company to be. So those are kind of the, the two models. It's either you go after a certain niche, you know, try to develop a tribe around a certain, uh, passion or you kind of go big or go home. I guess it's the other way to look at it. So some people start out, you know, kind of broad and then they get more narrow over time because they realize they're competing with, 10,000 other people doing the same thing and it's really hard to stand out but if you're the only person writing about you know kite surfing or uh, skiing in Canada or uh, you know hiking around Britain whatever it might be then you're going to have a, a better chance of people finding you just through search and through word of mouth yeah yeah so so actually it could be a sensible strategy for people to to refine down to quite a niche kind of market and interest and then focus on that and do that well. Yeah, and I do some courses and consulting. And a lot of times bloggers will do something like that and end up seeing their traffic go up pretty quickly because instead of them writing about anything and everything and not really standing for much, then they all of a sudden they've got people who keep coming back because they know, know what to expect. 
I want to come back to something that you said earlier, which I think kind of touches on this. You were talking about uh, people coming into to blogging and maybe having a problem because they weren't passionate about what they were doing. And the implication, I think, from what you were saying was that the passion on the, about the subject sort of comes first and then the, the content comes from that. I think so. And, and travel is pretty easy. I mean, if you're not passionate about travel, you probably shouldn't be out there on the road, you know, writing about it. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> Fair enough. That's probably true for a lot of subjects, you know. But, but also, you're going to have to come up with a lot of things to talk about, you know. I mean, a, a, it's not uncommon for a blog to have a thousand, two thousand posts over time, you know. So if you're not really interested in that subject, you're going to have a tough time continually coming up with new material. Um, I mean, it's not that you have to do that. I know one guy that has maybe 60 posts on his blog and he just keeps updating them every year and that's pretty much all. There's no date on them or anything, but they're very, you know, general. And uh, I think normally you got to, yeah, you got to be passionate about it first and then your audience will grow because they'll see that and they'll, you'll probably be writing about things that you're one of the only people writing about it. You know, you get that whole long tail search traffic that you hear about sometimes where it's not the big hotels in Berlin search term you're going to win at. It's a certain hotel or maybe a certain neighborhood or even like uh, the best places to get a certain kind of breakfast in Berlin. You know, you're going to have much better, (laughs) much better luck with that. So let's talk about travel then. Uh, we, we've kind of had a, a what I think is kind of useful, interesting diversion into blogging. But travel is 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 what you're about. So perhaps you could tell us briefly about where you've been. What 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 places have you visited? Well, when I went on that first backpacking trip, I was doing it on the cheap, and so we spent a lot of time in Southeast Asia and India and Nepal, and we ended up uh, going to Greece and Turkey and teaching in Turkey for a while. And then quickly ran through Europe and came home. <laughs> and then the second <laughs> second time we went to Morocco and then Egypt, Jordan, Israel, and um, eventually ended up in Korea to teach again. Uh, but then another trip, we went, you know, some other places. But always we were trying to figure out where our money would stretch the best. And that actually kind of led to my first book, which is called The World's Cheapest Destinations. And I just saw this hole in the market because... It was the kind of book I wanted to have when I was doing planning for these trips and there wasn't one out there. There wasn't anything that kind of side by side put it all in one place where the bargains were. And I figured, well, there's all these backpackers taking off every year. Somebody's got to, you know, be looking for this information. So uh, it worked out. And uh, but now I go more places because I'm writing for different outlets and whatever. I've spent a lot more time in Latin America, which we didn't do the, on those trips because uh we figured, oh, we'll get down there later, and we did, and yeah, <laughs> so it works out sometimes. But, uh, but yeah, the um, for us, it's very easy to go Latin America because we don't have any jet lag. It's like when you go to somewhere, yeah. somewhere in Europe, Western Europe. <laughs> so yeah, it's kind of you're going north south rather than east west, aren't you? I suppose so. You don't have that kind of that that problem. Um, when did you when did you write that first book about uh, places to go to that are cheap? Uh, around 2002, because then I put out the blog soon after. And this is another kind of funny side note. The only reason I started that blog is the publisher said, you know, if you put this blog out there and write about cheap travel, you'll probably get some media people finding you and get into some stories, get quoted. And I said, oh, that sounds like a good idea. And so that was the only reason I started it in the first place. <laughs> a happy accident. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so you, Back in the day, then uh, there was no obviously there was no self publishing. You could you had to go to a publisher to do that. Do you use publishers for all your written work now, or or ebook work even, or, or do you self publish anything? I've done two through traditional publishers, but the rest I've self published, and I would recommend that route for most people because these days you're on pretty even footing in terms of so many books are sold through Amazon and Kobo that. The rest is kind of like a, a smidgen of the pie. And, and I mean, if you have a, a business book, it makes sense to be in airports. If you have a bestseller, obviously you want to be everywhere. But I think for um, a book about a specific subject, a nonfiction book, especially, you know, you're just you're going to get most of your money from Amazon anyway. So you might as well get a bigger chunk of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Uh, so every so everything you do now. Oh. Say most things you do now are self-publishing. Then, and what sort of route do you take self-publishing? By which I mean, do you do you just use Amazon, go book, you know, uh, paperback and ebook? 
do you use uh, Lightning Source or some of these other other places? How how do you go about publishing your work? I've tried a few different ways, and one of them, actually two of them, I put through a print-on-demand publisher, so I give up more of the royalties that way, but they take care of a lot of the hassles, and they get it into the Apple Store and the Kobo Store and all that stuff, so to me, it's kind of worth it, but then uh, the last one I put out, I just went straight through Amazon to see how that would work, and uh, it worked pretty well, and um, I'll probably do it again in, in the future, and, and I'm not ruling out self, I'm not ruling out traditional publishing either, I might, I might do an anthology someday of stories from perceptive travel, because it's now more than a decade old, and I think if I did something like that, I would want to, like, have a nice little hardcover and put it out through a traditional publisher, and it would get re- I would, you know, I, it would get better reviews and everything because it's hard to get a self-published book reviewed in the major journals or the major magazines. There, there are a few downsides, but I feel like the financial ones make up for it so much that it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, so you are self-publishing some non-fiction work. Do you do any marketing spend for that? How do you how do you promote your your work? I don't do any marketing spend really, although I I'm thinking about experimenting with it at least on Amazon just to see what will happen. But I know people that have done that and have done pretty well with it. Uh, but most of my marketing has been through just normal publicity, online channels, and getting the word out through my mailing list, email lists, and things like that. And I, I kind of have more of a mouthpiece than some people having these other websites and blogs out. But I feel like what really sells a book, a nonfiction book, more than anything is if people know you and trust you because of things you've already written. And you, then you say, hey, I got this book out. And they go, oh, yeah, I know that guy. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's a little easier. It's not such a push, push, push all the time. It's more like uh, come along with me. And uh, books are not very much money, you know, when we really think about it. And so it's I don't think it's a huge ask to tell somebody to go out and spend $15 on something if they've been reading your blog for years. No, it's it. Uh, I it's interesting, isn't it? It's it sounds like it's kind of trust and reputation that will get you over that that barrier. Even if it didn't get you over a barrier, if you were selling a product for fifteen hundred dollars, for example, or it was be much more difficult. But for fifteen bucks, if somebody sure. if somebody's been engaged with you over the years, and then, then yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah, and even in the pre-internet days, publishers always wanted you to have some kind of a platform. You know, when you put a proposal together, you've got to have something in there about how you're going to market the thing. They, you know, a lot of people get a traditional publishing deal and they think their job is done, but it's really just starting. Yeah, well, certainly I've I have on this podcast told people, you know, that that even if you do get a traditional deal, you've you've still got to work. And I have agents and editors and people come on and they they shatter any illusions anyone has straight away on that. that yeah, you've got to kind of work hard for it. So, what sort of research? do you do before you go on a trip? And I appreciate what you do now might be different from what you might have done 10, 15, 20 years ago. But what's the kind of thing that you that, that you do to prepare? Yeah, we'll say the internet's made us a little lazy, all of us in a way, because we know we can look up anything at any time. <laughs> I, mm, I feel like yeah, in the print true. only days, I had to really do more research ahead of time and bring a guidebook with me and really be prepared because I couldn't fall back on that. But I, I tend to be less prepared these days, I think, um, and ch- kind of w- going in with no preset expectations to try to just see what kind of impression I get. But when I'm looking for story angles, I do a bit of that ahead of time. I'm trying to find out what's kind of unique about the place and what hasn't been covered too much. Maybe some people to talk to. It's, you know, if you can line up a couple of contacts ahead of time, that's always good. So I do that kind of research, but I try not to read much about the place, like what other people have written, because I think that can kind of pre-shape your expectations sometimes, and uh, and it's better to discover it on your own terms a lot of times. And I'm usually happily surprised. I if I go in without expecting too much, you know, I'm usually pretty happy with what I find there. Whereas if you go in and think this is going to be the greatest place I've ever seen, then uh, it's easy to get disappointed. Yeah, I guess if you set the bar a bit lower, then you're more likely to be be happy. Um, so, what does make a good travel story? What do you? What's your sense of the kind of material that you hope to find? 
Well, it's different for different outlets, obviously, and different audiences. One of the sites I run is called Perceptive Travel, and it's all narrative stories from book authors. So for something like that, what I'm really looking for is a good story. You know, what's uh, what's going on in this besides the place? You know, is there something some motivation or something weird that happens or is there a certain reason the person's there? Uh, but if you're just doing, uh, you know, five best things to see in uh, Amsterdam, then, you know, there's not much substance to that, I'm afraid. <laughs> I wish there were, but usually there's not. So it's just kind of, a, you know, it's called a listicle. It's like a, sort of a derogatory term, but it's so popular. It always has been. It probably always will be to do these two yeah, top, yeah. top 10 lists or top eight or whatever it is, or the best blah, blah, blah. So, you know, as a travel writer, you end up doing a lot of those, especially if you're a freelancer, just because that's where the money is. That's where the demand is. But then, you know, the longer, the more word count you have, the more space you have, then the more you can stretch. And so then I think it's a matter of saying something that hasn't been said before. Don't use too many cliches. It's I think a lot of the same writing rules apply across all genres, but I think with travel, it's a little bit harder because so many people have written about most places so many times that it's kind of tougher to find something new to say and it's a new way to say it. So the way I usually do that is to try to find a story or a certain aspect of the place that hasn't been written about much before, if at all. And then that way I can sort of look at it with fresh eyes but yeah, I think good writing is good writing in any genre. And I think the problem is with travel, it's it's easier to be a hack. But <laughs> people think they can people think yeah. they can do it because they've seen it a hundred times and they put out something that's really painful to read sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is it is it true? I'm I'm making an assumption here, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but if you've got a commissioned piece, it is more likely to be ten best 10 best restaurants in Istanbul and five best places to visit in Cambodia and all that, that, those kind of listy things. But if you're writing for yourself, you're looking for something, as you said, something a little bit different, a little bit quirky, maybe something that you come about up, upon by accident. You meet somebody, they've got an interesting story. It leads to something that more of that kind of organic type thing. Is that, is that a distinction that, that happens in, in, in that business? Yeah, I think so. And a lot of blogs, you'll see them kind of going back and forth between the really experiential things they've done in a place and then the sort of required, you know, six best things to do in Bangkok <laughs> sort of yeah. post because they they think sometimes wrongly, but they think, you know, one will get more traffic than the other. But I think also uh, it's kind of a difference in any kind of magazine writing or outlet writing where you've got service pieces and you have narrative pieces and you have explanatory you know, pieces, whatever. I think there's a lot of service in travel writing. That's just natural because people are wanting ideas on what to do on their trip. You know, they don't really care about your trip so much. A lot of times they want to know what's it going to be like for me? What should I do there? Where should I go? And they really are looking, they are looking for that factual um, information to try to narrow things down. You know, a lot of times people want to filter. It's like, I'm looking at 5,000 restaurants. I just need one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, so they do want somebody to tell them which one's the best. And so I think that's why we gravitate to those superlatives. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with service writing. And actually, my Cheapest Destinations blog is mostly that. I'm not talking much about myself on there at all, which is a good, a good thing, I guess, if I ever want to sell it. But I'm mostly giving advice on how to travel well for less or how to, you know, which places are going to give you the most the most bang for your buck, as they say. If there's somebody listening to this that thinks, oh, maybe I should get into the, to travel writing, what are the routes in? Is it is it always the blog first or is are there other routes in? What, what would your advice be? No, people come in from all angles. I think a lot of times people come in as freelancers and they start a blog or they go the opposite direction. They've had a blog for five years and then they start getting freelance work. But sometimes people just come in a side door from another kind of writing. You know, they used to be a business writer or entertainment writer or food writer, especially. That's not much of a stretch to go from food to travel or vice versa. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and, and there are plenty of freelancers out there that back to that multiple streams of income thing. They're not just writing about one subject. They're doing lifestyle in general, maybe, which includes a lot of different things, drinks and, you know, beer and food and 
coffee and <laughs> travel. <laughs> it all kind of can go together depending on where you go. So, uh, and business even, you know, there's a business of travel, obviously, too. There are trade magazines for travel just like there are for anything else. So, uh, some people write just about airlines and, and uh, travel hacking, you know, points and miles and frequent flyer stuff. Now, a lot of people are interested in potentially traveling and, and visiting places and looking at places, not because they want to do travel writing so much, but because they're researching for other reasons. Could be fiction, for example. I, I know a number of authors who mm -hmm. they will travel somewhere if they possibly can and just absorb things, absorb not just the factual information, but the experiential side of it. So what would your advice be to writers that, want to maybe write a story in a fiction piece and they want to set it somewhere particular like i don't know they want to is they want to set it in berlin or istanbul or bangkok or wherever it is and that's going to be a really important element in the story so what's your advice to people who want to do that sort of thing well first probably slow down and spend some time there i think a lot of the great fiction that's come out over the years that's been set in a, a certain place the, the writer probably lived there or at least spent months there, you know, so you're going to write a, you're going to capture an island in Greece much better if you're there for more than a couple of weeks than if you are, we used to call them parachute journalists, you know, than you are just a person popping in for two days and then leaving. So, uh, and then try to fold yourself into the local lifestyle as much as you can, you know, rent an apartment in a neighborhood, not, don't stay in a hotel right in the business district or the tourist district and eat where the locals eat, you know, all that kind of stuff. Try to make some friends or hang out at the cafe. So I think all those things would help with character development too, but they also give you a real sense of the place instead of you just seeing a superficial overview of it. And I've read some great fiction books that really brought a place alive better than any travel writing story I read. So it, it can really, it can be really effective if it's done well. Okay. Um, now, I want to um, talk about some of the other things that you do. You mentioned uh, when, we, when we had a little email exchange that you've also done some ghostwriting. So I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about how you get commissions for ghostwriting or how you, how you get that kind of work. Do publishers approach you? Do, do people who want their story written approach you? How, how does that side of your business work? Yeah, it was the latter for me. It was people that had more had more money than time who wanted a book finished and didn't have time to, to work on it themselves. I mostly worked for two authors who put out multiple books, all business books, and they were perfectly fine writers if they sat down and wrote an article, but they just did not have the time to write a whole book. And so, um, I was doing all the grunt work, you know, all the real, um, research and most of the first drafts of everything, but based on their ideas and their words and everything. And then, uh, they would put the final spin on it and polish and whatever, but it was pretty collaborative. And so I guess the first, first piece of advice there is do a good job on the first one and then you'll get more because <laughs> <laughs> I, I ended up doing I don't know, probably th three or four books for both of them. And I haven't done that lately just because now I don't have the time. And so I haven't uh, gone after that work. But if I were going after that work, that's the target audience I would be trying to pitch to is CEOs or business owners or speakers, you know, people that speak in front of an audience for a living. Those people, it, it's a huge advantage to them to have a book out because it just makes them so much more credible, helps them get media appearances, all that stuff. And they don't even care that they're not going to make money on it. For them, it's just a means to an end. It's not something they're doing as a business. It's something they're doing as a marketing tool. So they're perfectly willing to pay you five grand or 10 grand or whatever it's going to work out to be for your rate to them. That's just like another line item on the expense form. <laughs> yeah. Oh, fair enough. And, um, and in those, with those kinds of projects, are you telling their story? Do you tend to be telling their story? So about them, or are you finding out what their technical business thing is and then reproducing that? Yeah. For these guys, it was the latter. It was uh, an idea. It wasn't um, their story, but I think there's probably plenty of, work out there for both of them because if you've got a CEO or a business owner that's been at it for 30 or 40 years they probably do want to tell their story and there might even be a market out there for it you know if they've been in business or politics or whatever and they've got a good 
good story to tell, then, you know, people buy biographies all the time, especially business, business ones that they think they're going to learn from. But then there's also all kinds of business books out there that are about a certain thing or a certain idea. And that's especially true with speakers because they are out there, you know, getting $5,000 a speech to talk about a certain thing. And so that's what they want their book to be. That's interesting, isn't it? That you so the potential market for for this is busy speakers who have maybe built up quite a quite a business speaking, and, and I assume they then have to spend all their time speaking. They haven't got time to write. Usually, it's time, or they may not just they just might not be a very good writer. They might be a great speaker and a terrible writer, and they need somebody to put it into good prose form for them. But that example I was using with the money is not unusual that somebody's getting $5,000 a speech. So for them to spend $5,000 on a ghostwriter is no big deal. They cover it in one, one weekend, but that having that book is such a huge advantage to them. And they'll, you know, maybe they'll sell it from the back of the room or they'll fold it into the speaking negotiation or whatever, but they're, they're mostly doing it just for the credibility factor and the, have the fame wow sounds like a market just just ripe there doesn't it how, how do we find these people how do we yeah and and sometimes they do get a publisher i mean and get a you know sizable advance and then they just take a chunk of that advance and and pay the uh the ghostwriter but other times you know they'll self-publish it or they'll put it out through a, a small publisher and they don't really care if it's in every airport bookstore or not it's it's like a giant business card <laughs> yeah and i i would have thought the the balance of the argument is going in favour of just doing a going the self publishing route or or not going to a publisher because if you if you're a big speaker you are the brand aren't you 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 can right. you don't need you might not need some of the marketing muscle from a for a publisher that a publisher can offer because you can actually you've got some of the branding just in terms of your own name yeah but there are there are some publishers out there like Wiley and Crown maybe that actively recruit those kind of people to write books books for them because they know they're going to get so many corporate sales out of it that it's kind of a uh, it's not there's not much downside for them to pay in advance so they'll sometimes they'll approach a speaker and go hey you want to do a book for us and the and the speaker hasn't even thought of it before they're like yeah okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm sure that does happen a lot isn't it and i imagine a lot of people just might even say yeah i'll do it without yeah. thinking too much and they haven't they don't realize just how much work there is involved in yeah exactly they might start staring at that deadline going oh my oh, god yeah. i need to get, need yeah. to get some help <laughs> wow <laughs> so thinking about the the projects that you've done are there some cautionary tales or some lessons that we really need do need to learn if we're gonna if we're gonna go that route if we're gonna maybe sort of ghostwrite for people business books or whatever uh, what other what other pitfalls to avoid well i think for almost any kind of writing you're gonna do that's gonna earn you some money just understand it's gonna take a while you know if you've already been doing this for five years you got a big leg up because you've got you've got a body of work to point to you've got you know some kind of track record but if you're starting out, whether it's a blogger or a freelancer or an author or a ghostwriter or whatever, you got to go prove yourself. And that's just plain going to take a while no matter what. And it's it's even sort of institutionalized with blogs and websites in that there's this thing called the Google Sandbox where basically Google doesn't even take you seriously till you've been around for three months, six months, and then you don't even start getting indexed properly until you've been around for like a year. And they've never come out and said that. <laughs> in public but <laughs> no, everybody, that, everybody that has started a website knows that knows that's the case and so uh you can't speed up that process but so much you can get traffic from social media you can you know get on tv you can get in the media or whatever but you're not gonna you're not gonna speed up how fast you rise to number one in the search rankings unless you're writing about something super super obscure but I think it's true with anything. If you if you're going to go out and pitch clients for ghostwriting, the hardest one to get is going to be the first one, and you're probably going to have to pitch a lot of people before you get someone to say yes. But you never know. Ask around. You know, everybody's got friends and relatives and people from their church or whatever uh, kind of social structure they have, and there's probably somebody out there that's a perfect candidate if you start thinking about it creatively. I've found that there are in fact lots of people that want their story told out there loads of them and there's no shortage of them but it, when you start talking to them you have to then start talking about how much it might cost to do it and certainly the, the, particularly with more getting people to tell their stories 
the amount of time and emotional effort involved and the, in, in getting, doing all the interviews and getting it all written up and all of that kind of stuff is massive. And if you factor all that in, it suddenly becomes quite, an, for just ordinary people, it becomes quite an expensive thing. Maybe not for a kind of big shot CEO or a speaker who earns $10,000 in a weekend or whatever, but for for Joe Average, it's it's a, it's a lot of money, isn't it? Yeah, and that's a, that, that brings up another caveat. I, I think it's normally best if you can agree on an hourly rate and about how many hours it's going to take rather than giving a flat fee because then if it ends up taking – 120 hours instead of 40 hours yeah you know, you're not going to be stuck <laughs> stuck working for below minimum wage so uh i think it's kind of dangerous to especially if you haven't done it before and you don't know the person very well it's very hard to estimate how long it's going to take because they might just be super slow or super unorganized or well that's from my experience i've i've written I've done four or five ghostwriting projects, which are much more the kind of tell the person story side of it. And they just take a long time. And um, proper preparation presents a poor performance in the sense in that, that actually thinking mm. through all of them, the, the hours and the, and the money and all that is, is a good idea. So I wonder if there's a few things that you could share around. What do you do to improve your productivity and to get a grip on time? Management? Yeah, a lot of it came about from necessity as I started adding more more websites and more books and whatever. Uh, and people kept saying to me, well, when do you sleep? And I kept saying, well, I get plenty of sleep. I get eight hours a night. You know, It's not like I'm skimping on it and being one of these uh, crazy people that uh, is killing themselves physically. So over the years, I've learned to automate things and outsource things, which makes a huge difference, and then sort of develop work habits that allow me to block out time and really get uh, serious work done. I think, let's start with the easy things. The things that take up the most time for most people these days are email and social media. And if you can tame those two things, it's going to help a lot. And maybe if you're somebody watching eight hours of TV, you should probably cut down on that. But that's pretty obvious. <laughs> for, from a work standpoint, for most people, it, it's email and uh, and social media. So, uh, mm. and they're both essential in the modern age. But maybe uh, you got to separate what's work and what's play, and what needs to get what needs to get done and what can wait. And so just as far as like a few little tricks, uh, first of all, I don't check my email in the morning until I've gotten something substantial done. Like uh, I have three or four key things that have to get done that day. And after one of those is done, I'll eat my breakfast and check my email. But I don't uh, I don't do it first thing because the problem is you start seeing things you've got to respond to and it's somebody else's agenda. Somebody wants a favor from you. And, you know, 99 times out of 100 it can wait a few hours it's not going to be that urgent oh, yeah, and sure. so yeah. you know email is meant to be asynchronous it's not a text messaging system so just uh, give it a few hours and then batch it during the day after that don't keep those little ping alerts on so that every time you get a new email uh, you're you hear a noise and something pops up on your screen because that's going to be happening all day long and it's really distracting uh, and the same with social media, either be on it or don't be on it. Don't have a, your Facebook open all day and notifications popping up and all that, because all this stuff might not seem all that important if you're doing a job that doesn't take much concentration, but writing takes a lot of concentration, no matter what you're writing about. And you need like real blocks of time, not just two minutes here, five minutes there. You said that you'd like to get one substantial thing done before you have breakfast. So what, what, does your day look like in terms of when you start work, how much work you do, when you have a break, when you finish, that kind of stuff? Well, it's about to start getting later because my daughter's finishing high school. And so <laughs> for 12 years now, I've been getting up and taking her to school during the school year. So I've been tending to be a morning person whether I liked it or not. So uh, my morning routine is pretty boring. I just uh, get breakfast for her and fart around on uh, my phone and until it's time to go and I take her to school and I come back and start drinking coffee and, and start writing because by then I'm awake enough that I can at least do something basic. But then, um, yeah, I try to do a few key things each day. Like I've, like most people, I've got a big, long, you know, legal pad to do list. Some people have it on Evernote or whatever, but there's really a few things on there that matter and a few things that can, that, 
a lot of things that can wait. And I think that prioritization is a huge part of productivity too. You've got to understand what's truly essential to move your business forward, your writing forward, and what can, what's kind of busy work that's just going to make you feel like you're doing something when you're really not. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of things we do in the modern world fall into that latter camp. They're, you know, answering people or replying or hitting the like button or whatever. <laughs> you know, it's like, it makes it makes you feel like you're busy, but yeah. you're not really accomplishing much. And so if you can sort of figure out, I call it a velvet rope to-do list in my productivity cor- course. But you know, if you can figure out which things should get past the velvet rope, like a nightclub, and which can just which can stay outside for a while, <laughs> that will uh, kind of maybe help you um, sort of zero in on the things that matter. And you got to be thinking about different time frames. Of course, there's stuff you got to do right now because it keeps the bills paid, and then there's other stuff you got to do for the near-term future and the long-term future, so that you'll keep having revenue. I find that it's easy to be busy, but it's harder to focus on the things which are maybe planning for the long term and doing things which only come in increments but are bigger projects. So, and you were sort of talking about being, you know, being busy almost for the sake of it and short and long term and all that kind of stuff. So, how do you focus when you need to on longer term projects that take some investment of time? And that won't all, you know, won't come through straight away, but are critical in it as a long-term, substantial piece of work. Yeah, I think it's a matter of you just have to commit time to it and put it on your calendar if you have to. But say, you know, one hour every day or two hours every day, I'm going to work on this book or whatever this long-term project is. And you know, if you just if you're staring at a 300-page book you got to write, that's really intimidating. But if you take it 2,000 words at a time, then it's not so intimidating. And uh, maybe you've got a system where you just plug away and do rough drafts no matter how rough they need to be <laughs> on one day and you do and you do editing the next day or however you want to however your system is going to work but i think it just has to be time set aside for serious work and where you're not doing anything else where everything else is off the table that includes you know, talking to your spouse unless it's absolutely necessary. <laughs> it sounds kind of mean, but you know, like, well, you're at work, aren't you? I mean, you've got to treat it like work. Haven't you? I mean, you, you might need to go take a break and, you know, take a walk outside or, you know, in the old days when we were, when we were in offices, you'd go hang out at the water cooler or take a smoke break or whatever, but then get back to work and do what you were doing. And, uh, you know, don't just keep skittering around between 20 different tasks and do you use any particular software or apps or anything to, to help you? So I'm thinking of things like some people use Scrivener to do their writing. Some people use Grammarly to to, to check their stuff. That, have you got any sort of digital assistance, as it were, that, that you use? I do use both of those, actually. Uh, I only really use Scrivener for books, but I think it's really, really useful for that. But I've heard of people using it for other things, even like really long blog posts or things they have to break up long articles. But uh, I use Grammarly on Chrome, just the Chrome plugin, so it catches my goofs. Um, and uh, But otherwise, uh, there's a lot of tools out there for email that I don't use because they're built for Gmail, but there's a lot of them that are kind of neat, like Boomerang, where it'll um, you can sort of remind yourself. You Boomerang the message back to yourself so that you remind to do it later, or you can tell it to send tomorrow instead of today and things like that. There's a lot of scheduling apps. And then there's a lot of things like, uh, I think it's Rescue Time or Rescue Me that you can put on your computer that will turn off uh, your internet for a while uh, <laughs> and then turn it back on automatically if you don't have the willpower to do it yourself. But yeah, uh, but I'm, I'm kind of old school in a lot of ways because, first of all, I don't like having... I don't like depending on my phone more than I have to. So uh, that's why I don't use Evernote and I don't use a lot of those scheduling programs uh, because I don't want to be staring at my phone any more than necessary. And I'm kind of old school in my um, to-do list too. It's literally just a, you know, a legal pad with a bunch of stuff scrawled on it. And then the ones that are important, I put a big star next <laughs> to and That's really it. It's not very uh, complicated, but sometimes it's even a post-it note on the, on the, uh, on the monitor saying, don't, don't forget to do this by one. It's your deadline. Uh, and then I've got a whiteboard, which I put scrawl some other things on, but, um, I, I use a lot of software just, um, in my business, but 
those are more blogging oriented. Like there's a lot of scheduling programs like Hootsuite and if this, then that, and things like that, that will help you um, automate tasks so you don't have to do them manually. There's a scheduler for Pinterest called Tailwind. So a lot of those kinds of things will help you do social media without spending a lot of time on social media. <laughs> That's a beautiful thing. <laughs> now you mentioned Pinterest there and I've used Pinterest in the past, uh, for, to kind of support and accompany some of my podcasts. How, how do you use Pinterest and what, what, how can an aspiring writer stroke blogger benefit from using Pinterest? Yeah. If there are any, um, if there are any bloggers on here looking for ways to increase their traffic, I would say, uh, you could probably ditch most of the social media platforms and use Facebook, Pinterest, and Flipboard, and you will get lots of traffic because they're evergreen. Facebook's sort of evergreen, but the other two are really evergreen. So the way you use Pinterest is you put up some kind of photo, probably with some text on it, maybe not, but that photo then links to your blog post or to your article or whatever it may be. You could do a you could do a pin for something you wrote for somebody else if you want to just drive traffic to it and. Uh, help your book or whatever. So uh, the good thing about it is that pin will stay up forever. I mean, it'll it'll get repinned by other people, and so that sort of exponentially increases your reach. And then Flipboard's kind of the same thing, but for articles. So uh, it's not as well known, but it's it's quite useful. It takes very little time to set up and use. So it's sort of the same thing. They're almost like pins for stories. And you can um, flip your story, as it's called, and then other people can flip it as well. And that's starting to become a reasonable source of traffic also. That's interesting, is it? So and these, these are all to promote written media rather than audible media, aren't they, I presume? So these are, these are to promote articles and blogs and things rather than audiobooks or podcasts or whatever. Well, I have seen podcasters use... Um, use Pinterest, at least when they put up a new episode, they'll put a picture of the person or picture of the subject. And, and it might say episode 82 in the title of it. And, um, I imagine it can't hurt, you know, <laughs> I don't know. No, no, I'm sure. Well, yeah, I mean, as I said, I've used it, I've used it in the past years for quite a long time. I mean, I'll have to sort of think about maybe engaging with that again, I think. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't have such a buzz as Instagram, but Instagram doesn't send any traffic. It's more like a a buzz builder you know look and feel kind of thing but pinterest actually sends real traffic and it's also it probably wouldn't hurt to do that on flipboard either just try it and see and uh, see what happens yeah interesting so so the 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 process there is that you you could create a little bit of visual content you stick it on pinterest and then you can build in a link back to your blog your article your podcast whatever it is that you you're you're trying to you're trying to present to people. Correct, and Pinterest is like a big search engine. So uh, it's 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 called a social media platform, but it's really more like a search engine for long pictures. <laughs> and so if you, <laughs> if you put the right keywords in there, uh, people can end up finding your pin. And I mean, it's used for all kinds of weird things. So it's hard to imagine how people find your stuff. But uh, people use it for planning a kitchen remodel or or a wedding or you know new outfits they want to buy or whatever but they also do it for travel inspiration they do it for business ideas so uh there's all kinds of things and just one other little tip there's a tool called canva c-a-n-v-a that will help you build those pins that have text on them without you um having any photoshop experience oh that's interesting okay c-a-n-v-a yeah and it's most of it's free like certain templates will cost you a dollar but uh, most of the things, if you want to use it, are, are free. Okay. Now, I want to come back to something that you very briefly touched on and that, we, again, we talked about when we, when we had an exchange of emails. You used the term deep work in one of your emails, and that may have been just a little kind of throwaway comment almost, but I was quite intrigued by that phrase. Uh, what did you mean by deep work for a writer, and why is it important for us to be able to get into deep work? Yeah, I've heard that for a long time, but there's a book that came out few years back by a guy named Cal Newport that's called Deep Work. And he really dives into this for, you know, hundreds of pages. But the whole idea is this was easier in the old days than it is now, but you're basically getting away from all the distractions and doing the real intense uh, concentration kind of work that writers really need to do if they want to 
write something that's deep, you know, I mean, and I don't mean, I don't mean that in an intellectual sense, but you know, having depth to it. And so I think if you look back at the writers like, you know, Hemingway and Graham Greene and whoever, even when they were traveling around somewhere, they were holed up in a room on their typewriter, <laughs> you know, click, clack, click clacking it out for days on end. And when you read Stephen King's on writing book, he talks about not in those words, but about, you know, really just shutting the door and writing away for four hours and not even thinking about whether it's good or not, just kind of going with the flow and, you know, amazing things can happen. If you're a novelist, you know, I've heard this from a lot of people, the characters just sort of take on a life of their own and you don't want to stop. You know, if you're on a roll, you want to, you want to keep rolling. And I think that's true with a lot of just article writing too. If you're on a roll, don't stop for anything. (laughs) You know, you want to, you want to keep the flow going. And so, in order for that to happen, you have to have blocks of time where there's nothing else going on. I mean, ideally, we'd probably go find a stump in the woods or something, but uh, at least turn off turn off the electronics, turn off the TV. Um, music can work for some people, but not others. I can't listen to music with words, uh, especially rap. If I'm writing, it just messes me up. But if it's instrumental, <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> now, what are the other... Um strings to your bow as it were as i understand it is online courses so can you tell us a little bit about the online courses that you offer how you got into that business and and how how that worked how maybe somebody if somebody wants to get into online courses what should they be doing yeah i think this happens to a lot of people organically the way it happened to me is i just kept getting emails all the time with the same questions and uh in some of those cases i wrote a book and over so much in a book and I had people asking me more in-depth questions over and over again and um, and sometimes they sort of needed to be customized the answers you know you couldn't just give them a stock answer and so I did some speaking at writing conferences and uh, travel conferences and I had a pretty decent body of uh, advice I guess you'd call it so I, I just put this course together called travel writing overdrive and I haven't sold hundreds and hundreds of them. I've probably had 50 students at this point, but it's a premium kind of course. It's 199 or 189 for the self-study one and then like 349 for the one with conference calls. And for that one, we basically get on a conference call every two weeks for 12 weeks. And those students tend to do quite well after all that because they've had all this personal attention. I do some, I do a couple one-on-one calls as well. And there's some camaraderie there, you know, the students can work together on stuff. And I think sometimes we need that, you know, it's like an, it's like a college course almost, you know, sometimes you need to keep going over a subject in depth for a while to really make the changes you need to make. Cause if you just read an article or even read a book, you say, Oh, all right, that's great. I need to go do a, B and C. And then you <laughs> don't do them you know, because something else, yeah, something else yeah. gets in the way. And so, I think if if you paid for a course and you're enrolled in it and you're supposed to show up, you're going to um, be more motivated. You're going to have more accountability. So anyway, that's how I got started with it. And I, um, you know, did some reading up and whatever about how to structure it and that kind of thing. And then that one's 12 modules long, which is kind of long, but it's really in depth about everything. And then um, the productivity section of it was the one that kept coming up over and over again where people said, oh, wow, that was that one really changed my whole day. And so I re- released another in the one that's just on that for any kind of writers, not just travel writers. So tell us a little bit about that one. What's it called and what's the content on that? It's called Productivity Power for Writers. And that one's just four modules, basically four hours long. And it's it's cheaper. It's um, $99. And I um, run that one on a site called Teachable. And I'm going to move the other one over to there too eventually. Uh, which I would recommend. There's a monthly fee, um, and you know, but it's it's so much easier to use than most other methods. You just go in and set up your course, and it upload the video, and you can store everything there, and it's it's pretty simple. But the first one I set up using a WordPress plugin on my own WordPress site, and that that one was called Zippy Courses, and it worked okay. I still am using it for the moment until I move it over to the other Teachable platform, but. If you're not so techy, it's better, I think, to use something that's already set up and ready to go. Um, and I think you also, as well as all these other things, do a little bit of public speaking. I mean, do, do you? is that true? Do you do some paid public speaking gigs still? A little bit, but it's not much. It's, it's um, a few times a year, and it's mostly at 
writing conferences or travel conferences. And the one I did that was really a lot of work, but it was it paid off was I was at the San Miguel Writers Conference in uh, Mexico, San Miguel de Allende Writers Conference, which I would highly recommend for novelists, especially. It's really good. But I was the travel writing guy. <laughs> so uh, I was doing their sessions on that, like a workshop and session. But then usually I'm speaking at travel writing or travel blogging conferences. So it's just uh, one thing. Could you get more of that work if you wanted to, do you think? And and how do you get that sort of work? Um, it's possible. There's some people out there that speak on cruise ships. And uh, if you're into cruising, I guess that would be a pretty good gig. Uh, but, um, I think for any subject, you kind of have to work your way up the ladder. Like most anything you, you do your lunch speeches for local organizations and then that leads to something else. And then maybe eventually you get with the speakers bureau and they start getting booking gigs for you for conventions, conferences, that kind of thing. Uh, but I'm not an expert on this by any means. Most of the things I've done, they've kind of landed in my lap or I've, I've heard about it and they say, Hey, you got to go to this website to apply. And I've gone and applied. Uh, but a lot of them will just pay expenses. And uh, for me, that's worth it because I'm a travel writer. If I'll pay my expenses to go somewhere, <laughs> I can stay on afterwards. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I could see how that would work. I guess if, if it's somewhere that you want to travel to anyway, then it all works out for you, doesn't it? That's good. So I wanted to change tack very slightly now. Um, again, things we've just briefly touched on. Are there things that you do to look after yourself in terms of physical and mental health? Is there a, a, a maybe regime's too strong a word, but you know, are there things that, that you try to do to, to just keep yourself well? I do try to get some kind of exercise every day. And, and that's kind of a hard thing uh, when you're self-employed to remember to do because <laughs> you can we, we could work 24 hours a lot of times if uh if we didn't have to sleep because there's always something you could be doing but i i think it's important and i'm lucky enough to live in uh warm places i live in tampa florida and then i have a house in mexico uh, so i i can usually go out for a walk in the afternoon or a bike ride or something like that uh maybe two or three times a week i'll go lift weights but i'm not a gym rat i'd rather be outside if there's an option so uh, I think it's good to walk too, just for, um, as a writer, just to get ideas. And, um, you know, sometimes you find solutions to things that seem so obvious that were not at all obvious when you were sitting at your desk. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. That's interesting. So it's not just that it's not just the benefits of the exercise, but actually a different environment can sometimes make your brain come up with different things or solve problems. Or I whatever. think so. A lot of times I'll have some kind of naughty thing I'm trying to figure out and I'll go out for a bike ride or a walk and it just becomes more obvious. And, uh, and then I, I, I try to eat fairly healthy. My wife is a, uh, kind of a health nut so and she does more cooking so that kind of helps but it is important to look after your body because it's a machine you know and you if you're not healthy it's going to affect everything else you're doing and i'm not a fanatic about it by any means but i think you got to stay keep everything working reasonably well and try to avoid being sick <laughs> if you can because if, you, if you're laid out for two weeks it's hard to do much of anything so um, and I do believe strongly that you need enough sleep because I think that's how your body recuperates and regenerates. And I don't know how scientific there is, this is, but I think there's a lot of, uh, benefit in sleeping long enough that you're getting REM sleep because, you know, if we're writers, we got to be creative and I think it helps to, uh, have your brain have its playtime. <laughs> No, I think you're. I think you're absolutely right on that. Actually, um, and again, I'm no expert, but the research I have seen that the, there's a growing body of research that's pointing to all the benefits of getting enough sleep. Yeah, uh, and it, it just it's it's not one of those things where it's in fashion and out of fashion, and some scientists say it's a good thing and some don't. It's just a steadily growing body of work that's saying. You've got to get enough sleep. It's got to be the right kind of sleep. And otherwise, all kinds of problems can occur. Yeah, and it's kind of toxic. Uh, American culture especially, but it's like this in parts of Asia too. It's, we've had this ridiculous work ethic for quite a long time, so long it's gotten ingrained where you're sort of seen as a hero if you're you know, working crazy hours and sacrificing everything for your job and all this stuff. But that can kill you in a hurry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's... it's uh... It's a it's a bad deal. <laughs> it's a bad deal. So I coming towards the end now of our, our conversation. I just want to ask you um, 
if people are interested in all of, any of the things or all of the things that we've been talking about, how can they find out about all the different things that you do? Maybe you could just give us a mention of different websites, blogs, other ways to kind of connect with you. Yeah, probably the easiest place to send people for all my content is just my name. It's timleffel.com, and that links out to uh, stories I've written and the different websites I publish in the books. And so if you can remember my name, you can remember that. Well, do you want to spell, spell your name out for us, Tim? Cause that helps us all to remember. Yeah, it's, uh, T I M L E F F E L like L E double F E L. And, uh, I run the cheapest destinations blog, as I mentioned, perceptive travel. If you're interested in travel writing, uh, there's one called travelwriting2.com. So just the word travel writing, the number two after it, .com. And there, uh, every week or so, we interview writers and editors and just kind of get their thoughts on uh, what made them successful and what advice they would give. And that's all free. And um, I have the model that most online publishers do. I guess we give away 99% of our stuff for free and then ask people to buy things once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's how it works. It, it's... I I am have become convinced that writing and the writing business is is it's not like doing an academic course. It's more like uh, doing an apprenticeship and earning the right. Everything you everything you get you have to earn, or everything yeah. that you ask for you have to have to earn the right to ask, and you have to earn the right for for people to I don't know sign up for Patreon with you or you know yeah buy stuff off you. Maybe that comes back to that thing you were saying earlier about, you know, reputation and trust. That's only going to happen if you've got a lot of material out there that that editor could find. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, so are there any final bits of key information that you would want to give that are like, here's a burning thing that people really need to remember either with you with, as a business person, you as a travel writer, whatever? Well, I think this is a mindset thing, but if you're going to be a writer full-time in any kind of capacity, you've got to have some uh, self-motivation and discipline. And maybe it sounds kind of um, counterintuitive that if you're going to be a creative free spirit, you got to have lots of discipline. <laughs> but I think uh, almost any successful writer out there treats it as a real job. And so if you're just trying to wait for the muse to strike and maybe someday you'll get to it and someday you won't, it's probably not going <laughs> to happen. And so that's why we were talking about all the scheduling stuff and dedicating time to it. Cause a lot of it is just how much time your butt's in a chair and back to health. That's probably not great for your posture. So maybe have a stand up desk if yeah. that's better, but you got to have time, time in front of the laptop. Yeah. Unfortunately. There's no, there's no shortcuts are there really? Not really. Not that I've found. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, Tim, thank you so much for your time. That's been a, a fascinating conversation. There's lots of different things that we've covered there. Um, and I really do appreciate you giving me some time just to, to talk through those today. Sure, Andrew. Thanks for having me and for staying up and catching me here <laughs> in the States. Okay. Thanks very much. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Creative Writers Toolbelt podcast. If you want to find out more about the podcast or me, just go to my website. It's andrewjchamberlain.com.